Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode, the theme for Going West in 2002 was tracking the vernacular. Marilyn Waring, that year's opening night orator, delivers a keynote address that is part memoir and part love letter to Aotearoa. Taupiri te mawaunga, waikato te oa, te iwi pākeha, tēnā kutu katoa. Tracking the vernacular, I worried this subject for weeks. Of any title I might comfortably have arrived at to speak, for the first time I've been asked in New Zealand to speak about writing, this one would not have entered the picture. So I'd be driving along, uttering the mantra, tracking the vernacular, tracking the vernacular, tracking the vernacular, etc. And after some weeks of this, my mind led me home, quite literally, to a line in a piece I had written for the Waikato Times on nostalgia. It was to be the first in a series from old local identities, and mine was on Topiri, where I grew up. Near the middle of the essay I'd written, for most travellers, Topiri is a blur on the map, with nothing to distinguish it from a myriad of small, similar towns around the country. But for me as a child, the whole place was a playground. We could rove and roam pathways, riverbanks, school fields, sports grounds, backyards and paddocks freely, as if they were our own. I remember the shock of the UK immigrant newcomers who were building their house, telling us we were trespassing and couldn't take the shortcut through their property from the dairy factory on our way home from school. Trespass wasn't the sort of word you used in Tokiri. <coughs> Trespass wasn't the sort of word you used in Tokiri. And in remembering that, I arrived at my beginning. Perhaps I could track my vernacular with all its twists and turns and see where that led me. I recognise my vernacular as very culturally and environmentally determined, but the impacts of these influences were felt in quite distinct ways. I'm able to trace some of that through my writing and a couple of selections from the writing of others that influenced me at different times. So let me begin again. I wrote a piece called On Claiming a Pākehā Identity in January 1996. We'd been trekking for three days between Pākari and Tiarai around the Tomarata Lakes and along glorious beaches, clean air, clean water, rarely seeing other people. On the way home, the 17-year-old, a prefect that year in a private girls' school, began a conversation about what it meant for her to be a Pākehā New Zealander. This had been provoked in part by her indignation on registering at the school in 1996 to find that she was expected to identify herself as European. 
I'd also been indignant about the issue in days past when I'd read an opinion piece by the then Minister of Arts, Simon Upton, labelled, I am European and proud of it. It purported to be about cultural identity. I'm European, he wrote. Their culture is my culture. If, as a European New Zealander, you want to understand why you think or speak as you do, your search will lead you back to European roots. It claimed, we shouldn't be trying to deny who any of us are or where we come from. Well, Simon and I both come from Naruwahia, <laughs> on the banks of the Waikato River, and bordered by the Hakaramatas. Coming from this place certainly informs why I think and speak as I do, and it's a considerable distance from any landmass regarded as European. Where I grew up in Topuri, all of us went home for kai, wore potai, took a mimi behind the trees, observed tangi at the end of the road, talked about different tane and wahine and kuya and mokapuna in the village. It would have been a foreign language for any European child, even a British one. Of course, this time of our childhood coincided with Macmillan and de Gaulle bantering over whether or not Britain could be part of Europe. And the cultural cringe of that time was the notion that to be British could possibly mean being European. Britain's joining the European economic community has always been the moment in my lifetime when I think a large sector of the population of New Zealand grasped the opportunity to coast off a toadying deference to roots then four or five generations old. To the young woman asking, I expressed my notion of being Pākehā. Beginning with my inability to describe my identity and where I come from without speaking te reo. I spoke of topographies and colours, of long and wide uncluttered spaces, of the textures of feathers and fauna not found anywhere else, of the remnants of dinosaurs called tuatara, of kākāpō and kiwi, of kauriri, kauri and pūriri. I again resorted to that non-European language. And when I speak, moved to speak of the music and fashions of my generation's culture, I resorted to the lyrics of two other local Waikato lads, Neil and Tim Finn, who began a song on an album released at the height of Split End's fame in Europe, I was born in Te Awamutu. I was delighted to find in another publication some days later that Tim Finn was fond of quoting Gertrude Stein's line, people are the way their land and air is. Upton probably doesn't agree. After all, she was a transplanted US citizen. But to be European in the way their land and air is, spare me. The rainbows are layers of the varieties of suspended pollutants. The mosses of Denmark will radiate Chernobyl's poison for 10,000 years. There's something a little immature, Upton wrote, in the habit of some New Zealanders trying to define themselves without reference to their European cultural roots. In which case, this privileged, well-travelled Pākehā, who could afford to leave Aotearoa and sample the Opera of Milan, the architecture of Rheem, and the galleries of Amsterdam and Florence, and feel inconsolably homesick on the way, will wear the immaturity with pride. Arahamid says citizenship is about identity. There's something privileged and arrogant about refusing to embrace being Pākehā, and a cowardice I smell there too. 
I cannot avoid the conclusion that if generations of your family have been born in Aotearoa, to choose to call yourself European is to deliberately and consciously choose to continue the process of colonization, not only of the tangata whenua, but of all others here too. Cultural identity is a cutting edge debate, inviting a personal decision which varies with experience and information for those who are willing to embrace cutting edge debates. I was amused to see the deft kicked for touch made by the Department of Statistics in their 1996 census. Are you a New Zealand European or Pākehā, it asked, and neatly trapped Upton and me in the same identity. <laughs> My postscript is, Simon must be at home now. He's working for the OECD in Paris. <laughs> well, I'm sure that many people who have passed through or taken the shortcut to turn off at Topuri would think that the vernacular of Topuri would be limited in terms of its politics and its international engagement with the critical issues of the late 1950s and early 1960s when I was growing up. But also in the piece on nostalgia, I recalled, everyone knew everyone. Several times a year I knocked on every door in town selling girl guide biscuits or the Gestetnid school magazine or tennis club raffle tickets. And every year the local Seventh-day Adventists and the local IHC collectors would knock at our door. But someone else knocked at our door. The only, this always reminds me of Miss Marple's village when I think about Topri. Harry Clark was the sole Topri member of the Beijing aligned New Zealand Communist Party. <coughs> and he was known to everybody and no, nobody kind of worried about that. And in Topuri, when people knocked at your door, you gave what you could give. And at the age of nine, my father bought me Bertrand Russell's Common Sense and Nuclear Warfare. In reading of the plans of militarists, I try very hard to divest myself for the time being of the emotions of horror and disgust. But when I read of plans to defile the heavens by the petty squabbles of the animated lumps that disgrace a certain planet, I cannot but feel that the men who make these plans are guilty of a kind of impiety. I hope, though with much doubt, that some gleams of sanity may yet shine in the minds of statesmen. But the spread of power without wisdom is utterly terrifying, and I cannot much blame those whom it reduces to despair. But despair is not wise. Men are capable, not only of fear and hate, but of hope and benevolence. Hope and benevolence. Perhaps I might have expected something of that in the vernacular of my next twist of fate. At the end of two years at the Narawahi High School, 
I was sent away to be finished to the Waikato Diocesan School for Girls. <laughs> On my first day there, I added to my vernacular, Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Citroen, and Jaguar were not the sort of words we learned to spell in Taupiri and Narawahia. I also just remembered that within my first week came a letter from my dad and a small book inscribed for no particular reason. You can ruminate on why he sent me the Rubaiyah of Omar Khayyam to the Waikato Diocesan School for Girls for years. <clears throat> but along with this also came litanies, liturgies and epiphanies, certainly the later of which I didn't experience very much, and at a time when my C drive, C for cerebral, was just, just hitting the fast lane, it was filled with the lyrics of 636 hymns, ancient and modern. <laughs> 35 years later, I still know all the words on Sunday morning. <laughs> well, when from diocesan, I went to Victoria University to study law and politics. So first I was confronted with complexity, and I had brought along to give a taste of that arcane world that I entered, the poverty of historicism. Karl Popper refused a professorship at Canterbury University, but I opened it just a little while ago, and I really don't think that I can subject any of you to the turgid complexity of this. Um, except I'll just share a little bit, because he's... Um, comparing sociology and the social sciences with the natural sciences. Um, and I can say in his defense that this was probably a little earlier than quantum physics got close to the chaos theories, but it was certainly post the Copenhagen School of relativity and complementarity. So when he says things like, in physics we are dealing with a subject matter which is much less complicated, in spite of that, we further simplify matters artificially by the method of experimental isolation. I wonder how we would have dealt with quarks. It was possible to read this and Schumpeter and all the other turgid texts we were subjected to in politics and to have only clinically detached thoughts which was encouraged in those of us who were students in the social sciences in the early 70s. But other lectures and the stirring of the new phase of the women's movement made clinical detachment more and more difficult. I managed to stay in law school, doing a double degree, until the third year when I hit crimes and joined the women's liberation movement. Something I wrote a little later, before some major law changes, give an interesting reflection on the vernacular. Some women believe that there is a law that protects their physical integrity, the protection of the right to choose whether, when, and with whom to have a sexual connection. They're wrong. The essence of the crime is theft of another man's property. It is called rape. 
There's a belief that marriage is a partnership of equals, a relationship of mutual rights and obligations. But you cannot, it appears, violate your own property so that, quote, no man shall be convicted of rape in respect of his intercourse with his wife, end quote. This is called spousal immunity. There is a belief that increased awareness of the horror of rape has changed the system to lessen the trauma for victims. Throughout the country, when the victim reports to a police station, she is led through locked doors along cell-lined corridors full of those under arrest to a converted cell, cramped, badly equipped, often poorly cleaned, for a medical examination. She may have a policewoman with her. It is unlikely she will be examined by a woman doctor. She is unlikely to have any close friends with her for support. This is called being treated sympathetically. Women believe that in saying no, they have demonstrated lack of consent. Men believe no means yes. So if you are raped after a fight with your husband or lover because he wants to make up, or by someone in authority over you, or because you are blackmailed into it, or because you know from years of experience that the peace is easier than the resistance, then the law is subject to the House of Lords decision in Morgan's case on consent. With all the mass of legal adherence to the standard of the reasonable man, and notwithstanding the compounding bias of this of, of sex bias, Morgan's case sets a different standard. A defendant should not be convicted of rape if he genuinely believed that the woman was consenting, whether or not his view was based on reasonable grounds. This is called a successful defence. It is generally believed that rape is a crime of violence, but the law says it's impossible to be raped without violence. So the media will report and judges will repeat, fortunately, the complainant was not injured. This is called rape simpliciter. People who have never attended court hearings before who are called as witnesses to a rape case cannot believe that defendants, especially those who raise consent as a defense, can remain silent. The victim spends her time on trial in the witness box, often for more than a day. The defendant is innocent until proven guilty. The victim is guilty until proven herself innocent. This is called centuries of legal tradition. It will not surprise you to know that during that year, I dropped out of law school. But this was complicated by the voices of women in New Zealand, and some born in New Zealand, who were publishing text that were recommended reading by the time I hit my honours year. Juliet Mitchell's Women's Estate. The assimilation of, the women, of women's liberation by the media into colourful reportage may be symptomatic of something more than its hungry lust for sexual objects in any shape they come. As individuals, many men react to women's claims with fear, or alternatively, with bemused compensatory tolerance. But there is no indication that as yet, despite its enormous growth, the organized movement can claim more than nuisance value. All previous revolutionary movements have had at their center at crucial times to be clandestine. It is not just that the media gives women's liberation publicity, it is that in concept and organization, it is the most public revolutionary movement ever to have existed. Able too, to make the most revolutionary statements in public without anyone seeming bothered. 
This raises many questions, not only about a society which sees women as always unserious, but perhaps more critically for the immediate future about the nature of the movement itself. I graduated. And there was a magic year of studying music in London, Covent Garden, the South Bank, the old Vic was still there. I learned the differences between Romanesque and Gothic and perpendicular arches. I understood Baroque music because of the architecture at Würzburg and Regensburg and Rottenburg. I tried unsuccessfully to understand all the characteristics of Pontelist and Cubist and Impressionist paintings, never got there, and saw theatre which I remember today with great clarity. Vanessa Redgrave and Peter Hunkers ride across Lake Constance, Laurence Olivier and Joan Plowright and Pirandello, Peter Hall's productions of Shakespeare. Learning a vernacular that was almost impossible for me to speak of on my return home to Taupiri and Naru Wahia. But it was not long before I was turned in another direction entirely, a place of estimates and appropriations, of men giving maiden speeches according to standing orders organized by whips. <laughs> in the weeks before I was to leave Parliament, the listener asked for a reflection on being a member of Parliament. And the very first of the letters to my sisters were, was written. There are times when I still find it hard to read. But we'll try a little bit, which is a reflection on the first term. I watch the games and lines of caucus for the first time, not recognizing them, taken in not realising I'd become used to these moves. The most testing agenda items left until 12.45 with a conclusion of 1pm. Issues like a national price for milk or national two-channel coverage for television popping up and being a safe bet for an inconclusive and wasted hour when there was major electoral discontent that should have been aired. The good old pre-budget kite flyers to make the backbenchers feel they've been consulted prescription charges, indirect taxes. When just enough new members enter every three years and just enough older members think they might jeopardize promotion chances by getting involved and just enough don't want to get involved and just enough think it's a pointless waste of energy anyway, old dogs don't need new tricks. I become involved in my first abortion debate and it highlights what I have slowly learned of the diversion of being beset by sisters and the abject humility of being understood. There's the rewriting of the Security Intelligence Service legislation and Michael Minogue wins a commitment to an Official Information Act. I take down every word of caucus for this year and keep it with a copy of the official caucus minutes. It's in the Turnbull. Still the student, I think the comparison may be of interest someday. <laughs> but there's too much to do, so much to learn, so much I don't see clearly, so much I don't say. But Huntley needs, a one, million, needs one million dollars of energy resources levy because of the power station and a national roads board priority for a bypass and a poll for a trust tavern. And I'm meeting with Eva Rickard about the return of the Raglan golf course. I do as much as I can. 
I arm myself with Catherine Mansfield for bold encouragement. And on my wall, I write her words, risk, risk anything. Care no more for the opinions of others, for those voices. Do the thing hardest on earth for you to do. Act for yourself, face the truth. It joins T.S. Eliot's lines from the Dry Salvages. And right action is freedom from past and future also. For most of us, this is the aim never here to be realized, who are only undefeated because we have gone on trying. In the years that have passed, I've been a farmer, a development worker, an academic, a consultant. I've always been an avid reader and prized those New Zealanders who have written in a voice that I have recognized as distinctly ours. I was thinking as I drove here of Frank Sargison's writings with the uncle on the farm in the King Country. Coming through North Shore, thinking of Janet Frames living in the Maniatoto, which loads of people found a grim book and I laughed out loud on aircraft whenever I was reading it. Owen Marshall's stunning short stories and Patricia Grace's gems. I believe that Butterflies is one of the most important, staggering short stories in our vernacular ever written. It's a skill that I treasure, but not one that I would claim. But there have been moments when I've felt my voice to be distinctly ours. And I'd like to finish with a reading where all these tracks to my vernacular find a home. One which I think a number of you might be able to share. In June 1995, the G7 summit, as it was then, was to be held in Halifax in Canada. And the National Film Board of Canada had decided to premiere the documentary Who's Counting, which was based on Counting for Nothing, at the People's Summit held in conjunction with the leaders' meeting. i tell you as a kind of little addition, because I like to say this because New Zealand wouldn't fund any of it, um, that it's now the highest-selling documentary the National Film Board of Canada ever made. This award-winning film was made by director Terry Nash. And because the premiere was to be held there, I was asked to write the open letter from the people to the leaders. And this is it. Gentlemen, last Sunday I was dressed in a winterweight wetsuit and handed an old inflated tire tube. With me were two adults and four children, one of whom was an eight-year-old boy, Sam. We descended a small path through native bush to a tomo, wound our way down to a tunnel entrance, and launched ourselves afloat on a small river. Lit by a myriad of glowworms, the fossilized remains of shells were clearly visible in the limestone above us, rock carved by the ocean millions of years ago. And all around us shone stalactites and stalagmites, their extraordinary shapes and textures alive with the quiet drip of water, each one of these staggering forms growing before our eyes at a rate of one cubic inch every 300 years. 
The farmland above had preserved bush stands. This land had not been poisoned with fertilizers and chemicals, but had sustained indigenous people and tradition and modern farming practices for 800 years. It produced food, and the caves lived on below. We followed the path of the river for a kilometre underground to emerge through more bushland, teeming with nesting bird life, and returned with our hosts to a traditional family marae, where we showered and were fed soup and toast. All tribal protocol was observed without pretension. On this Sunday, May 14th, New Zealand had won the America's Cup in yachting. In this country, it was churlish not to follow the news. I turned on the radio. More cases of Ebola were counted in Zaire. The disease had spread because of the lack of absolutely basic medical supplies in a hospital. I remembered that two-thirds of Zaire's GDP was controlled by Unilever and other multinationals. Into my mind flashed a scene from my UN fieldwork in Bangladesh, coming upon the World Health Organization vaccination team in a village. I watched the same needle and syringe being used repetitively. I'd grimaced. It's okay, the team leader assured me. On children this age, you can use the needle up to 10 years, 10 times before it gets blunt. The news continued. China had conducted another nuclear test, and France was rumoured to be commencing underground testing at Mururoa in the Pacific. Japan had increased its storage of nuclear waste material. The International War Crimes Tribunal had announced a list of Serbian leaders it wished to prosecute for their part in a war from which, by international agreement, weapons had long ago been banned. In Iraq, there continued to be a shortage of basic medicines as a result of the Gulf War. Well, I remembered how our countries rallied to defend democracy in the Gulf War. In Saudi Arabia, where there's no universal suffrage, and in Kuwait, where half of us are not entitled to vote. I compared this with G7 resolutions in respect of South Africa. And I remembered the words from an interview in the documentary, Who's Counting? Ben speaking in a nuclear silo of the way he and his colleagues have been drilled to fire nuclear weapons. He says, we're trained so highly that if we had to do it, it would be an almost automatic thing. There wouldn't be time for any reflection until after we'd turned the key. Finally, on the radio, there's an interview with the New Zealander who designed the mast of the yacht that won the world's oldest sporting event. What was his proudest moment, he was asked. People said nice things about the mast, he said. It didn't give any trouble. It never fell down. When asked how he had competed from his basement garage with the likes of designers from NASA, he quipped, if you don't have money, you've got to have ideas. <laughs> Gathered together at your 1995 G7 summit, you'll count your growth statistics, your GDP figures, your currency values, your unemployed, your interest rates, your investments, your surpluses or deficits, your export receipts. You will count your money. Outside, we wait for the ideas, those that spring from the real world, where too many of us are refugees, too many of us are preliterate, too many of us are anemic or malnourished. 
where too many trees are felled and too many of us are poisoned by the byproducts of what qualifies as production. Too many of us are dependent. Too many of us are the subjects of corrupt political regimes whom you welcome for their business and capacity for exploitation. Too many of us have no fresh air anymore, and most of us are women and children. Most of our lives and work don't count in your statistics, and we do notice that you are all men. But can any of you remember from your childhood the sense of wonder in Sam's experience in the cave, the awe, the amazement, the capacity for utter humility in the face of millions of years of unalloyed drama in the kind of world from which your office now excludes you? Do you remember this boy in you and what he valued? Outside your room where the G7 summit meets, a different sense of values operates for most people on the planet. Six weeks ago, Sam was with me in the ancient kauri forests of northern New Zealand. In early autumn here, the cones explode, showering seeds on the ground. Sam picked them up, more than 400 of them, and is planting the offspring of 800-year-old magnificence that we viewed for free to sustain life and to defy the political and economic pathology that governs your agenda and your lives. Gentlemen, I do not address you cynically or lightly. I retired after three terms in the New Zealand Parliament. I have some small experience in that profession and close friends say I'm a consummate apologist for politicians. So I ask you, do you have the political will and the personal commitment to plant trees that may live 800 years or to preserve living, growing, fossilized caves for millennium? Or is all imagination spent? My vernacular. This has been an archival recording from the Going West Writers' Festival. Thanks for listening.